0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Totems are a significant symbol by tribes from the southeast Alaskan coast down to the Pacific Northwest. Each tribe and each carver have their own style and message. At the same time, totems with questionable authenticity are in front of museums, in public parks, at schools, and even in souvenir shops. Today, we have some accomplished indigenous carvers to talk about the importance of their work and the stories behind them. We're back after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Federal regulators this week said the Salish Kootenai Dam did not draw too much water out of Flathead Lake last summer. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports some residents blame the dam operator for historically low lake water levels.
0: Flathead Lake's low water line last summer was the result of a shallow snowpack and warm temperatures melting that snow quickly. Residents filed complaints with federal energy regulators arguing that the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes drew too much water out of Flathead Lake. They say that harmed the tourism industry. Regulators say the dam stayed within the bounds of its license. The CSKT are fending off another complaint, too. A separate group of residents and business owners argues the dam should follow an old management plan that would keep more water in Flathead Lake. CSKT officials say that plan was never approved and would reduce downstream flows harming fish and other aquatic species. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton.
1: Nellie Moore was a broadcast journalist who leaves a big footprint in Alaska and beyond. She died last week at the age of 69. Moore was one of the first indigenous women to report in Alaska and was one of the early hosts of National Native News. KMBA's Rhonda McBride tells us how it all began in the northwest Arctic community of Kotzebue with her father, Ed Ward, who inspired her lifelong passion for radio.
2: You can thank Ed Ward. In a 2016 interview she describes him as a man crazy about radio. I would always find the tubes that somebody needed and put them in the tube tester and make sure they worked.
3: I thought she was a rare find in many ways.
2: Alex Hills first met Nellie when her father brought her to the Kotzebue Airport to meet the man who would become the first manager of KOTZ. Under Hills' guidance, the station went on the air in 1973. Nellie was barely out of high school when Hills hired her to be the station's first news director.
3: Kind of spunky, actually.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was Hills on the same radio show as Nellie. There, to talk about his new book on Alaska's early days of radio and telecommunications. One of the photos in the book is of Nellie when she interviewed the late Governor Jay Hammond at the airport dressed in a pair of overalls with a blue bandana on her head.
4: They say a picture is worth a thousand words. In this case, Nellie was leaning forward, and the governor of Alaska was leaning back. That told me a lot about her interview style. She was a village girl, and she wasn't going to
2: be shy about talking to someone about important issues. Nellie's daughter, Liz Cravalho, says no matter how successful her mother became, she never changed. And that, says historian Paul Ontogook, was her legacy. Nellie demonstrated that
3: journalism could be the voice of Alaska Native communities.
2: Not long afterwards, Nellie went to work at KNBA in Anchorage, serving Native communities nationwide. For National Native News, I'm Nellie Moore. KNBA's President Jacqueline Salee says Nellie also produced programs the station continues to air today. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride.
1: The Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas is seeking Native Youth to take part in its Native Youth Leadership Summit. The summit brings young people from across Indian country to the university to explore careers in food, agriculture, and nutrition. Applications are now open online for this summer's summit. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kowanic Broadcast Corporation,
3: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. dash. For more than forty years, Ramona Farms has revived ancient traditional foods, teppery beans, pinoli, polentas, and more, all from store.ramonafarms.com. Ramona Farms supports this show. Om
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. A totem tells a story specific to its carvers and their tribes. What may look like abstract shapes and figures to a casual observer are actually designs and messages passed down through generations. In some places, especially in the Pacific Northwest, the Canadian coast, and up into southeast Alaska, totems are common in public settings. But true totems that are created traditionally face a number of new challenges. The giant trees providing the timbers from which they're made are increasingly scarce. It's sometimes hard to recruit new carvers to the craft, and those who display totems, whether in private or public settings, often turn to non-Indigenous carvers who don't have the sense of culture that totems originally represent. What do you know about totems? When viewing a totem, do you ever stop to think about who carved it? An Indigenous craftsperson or someone who is not Indigenous? Do you think it matters? Call in, join our conversation today, connect with us at one eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight. 996 2848 That's also one eight hundred 99 native Our first guest is joining us from British Columbia in Canada, Kerry Newman. He is a Master Carver, Artist, and Impact Chair for Indigenous Art Practices at the University of Victoria. He is Kwakwaka'wakw and Stalo. Good morning Kerry and welcome.
5: Good morning. Thank
0: you for having me. Absolutely. In Kent, Washington, we have Chairman Mike Evans on the line. He is the chair of the Snohomish Tribe of Indians. Welcome to our show, Chairman Evans. We'll go back to Chairman Evans in just a moment. In Anchorage, Alaska is T.J. Young. He is a Haida Carver. Welcome back to NAC, T.J., and please feel free to further introduce yourself.
6: Hi, thank you for having me. Um, T.J. Young is my name. My real name, my hiding name is Squion. And, uh, yeah, good to talk to you again.
0: Good to have you on the show, T.J. Joining us from the Lummi Reservation in Washington State is Jewel James. He is a Lummi Master Carver. Welcome back to NAC to you as well, Jewel.
7: Uh, Thank you. Yes, I'm the head of the House of Tears Carvers here at the Lummi Indian Reservation, Washington
0: State. Thank you. Thank you, Jewel. And joining us from the Macaw Reservation is Greg Colfax. He is a Macaw carver and artist. Good morning, Greg. Uh,
4: good morning. Well,
0: let's go ahead and uh, start the show now. And Carrie, I'm going to begin with you. And I think people who travel to British Columbia and other areas where traditional totems are numerous, might not be aware of challenges carvers face, what are some recent examples of cultural appropriation by non native artists you've encountered?
5: Um, I think it's kind of been an ongoing uh, ongoing issue where where people who are maybe not connected to community, definitely not indigenous, see the work that we do and they want to to learn more about it, then they decide that it's marketable when they start selling it. So there's there's a couple of people who've, or artists, I'll use quotations there, who who have been practicing Northwest Coast um, design style, who are not connected um, to any community. They're not from the community. They're not Indigenous. And what ends up happening is they're making things that may, to an untrained eye, look like it's from there but they don't have any of the teachings that go with it. They don't have even like the rudimentary understanding of how uh, how those design forms are supposed to fit together. And it ends up creating a misrepresentation of uh, of our various sort of cult- cultural forms.
0: Now, Kerry, are there strict guidelines then for who should or who should not carve totem poles?
5: I think that... A, a basic rule should be that if you if you're not from the place where the design is that you're carving, um, that you probably you probably need to connect to that place before you do it. We did have kind of like a um, a tradition of is like here near where I'm from, we have a few different styles of, of totems. We've got coast Salish, which are house posts. We've got um, Kwakuwak and Haida, which are more pole, poles, also new channels, um, carve poles, and they all have a distinctive um, look to them that are a little bit different from each other. And it used to be that carvers would move from community to community to carve for that community. And I think that's a, a big difference from me as a Kwakuwak carver deciding I want to carve something in new channels because I've got a customer for that and and carving it. So. I think that people should be um, connected to the communities whose artwork they're, uh, they're reproducing. And I definitely believe that you should be First Nations if you're going to be carving totems.
0: Carrie, let's also talk about the challenges uh, with the material, specifically the red cedar that's used to carve the totems. Uh, why a shortage?
5: Uh, I guess, in short, industrialization um, deforestation uh, capitalism <laughs> those are all contributing um, contributing forces that that uh that have led to massive clear cuts throughout um, throughout the pacific northwest and I think we're down to less than twenty percent of the um, of the old growth ecosystems from which we've been harvesting our uh harvesting trees for for our cultural and artistic practice for tens of thousands of years um we we we're cutting them down too fast and that's not because of first nations people it's not because of of carvers it's because we cut them down we chop them up and we export them um as
2: okay.
5: as raw timber
0: and Kerry, this isn't like a Christmas tree farm. I mean, it's not like you can grow one of these trees in ten years, right?
5: No, I think uh, the average the average age of trees that I carve, uh, the old growth ones, are kind of like minimum three hundred and fifty, but usually around um, between five and six hundred years old. Uh, so, so exactly right. We if we don't plan our harvest cycles on that kind of a a timeline, then of course we're gonna run out of the good stuff. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Really challenging. Carrie also I've heard that uh well there's been reports traditional carvings have actually been stolen. What can you tell us about those crimes?
5: Oh I guess there's a there's been a um, you, you know, with with how much there's just two things that happen. Like, so I've I've heard cases of like up up near um, near the north end of the island near Alert Bay, there was a someone just like came with a chainsaw in the middle of the night and and cut down uh, a pole that stood near the edge of the Nimkush River. They they kind of cut what they figured they could fit in their truck, I guess, and then then they made off with it. So there's there's that kind of like. Physical crime, right? But there's also because we have so much available on the internet. There has a, been a, like a, a big rise in how many fraudulent pieces um, are being sold in galleries as authentic. So there, you know, like you see the trinket totems that are cast in plastic or whatever um, for the tourist market, right? Often those aren't um, attributed to any particular artist they're just a, a company that's that's rendered them out and they're they're spitting them out for as cheap as possible but there's now a whole bunch of work that's being carved in other countries uh, where labor is cheap and being imported they're made from wood they're handmade by somebody but they're not handmade by uh, by an indigenous artist from from anywhere near here and you see them all over the internet for sale and you also see them, in, in some of the galleries around here. And I think that's probably the biggest, biggest challenge with being a, being a carver these days is, is, um, trying to make clear the difference between these, these ones that are kind of sort of similar, but they're not authentic. They're not, they're not even made out of the right wood. They're made out of exotic woods from other places. Um, and it's it ends up taking food off the table of of uh, of our artists who who live here, the people who who uh, who develop these artistic forms over over millennia.
0: Kerry, I'm also interested to learn uh, how the art and practice of carving totem poles has evolved over the years. Is your approach different than perhaps how a carver would have worked 200 years ago? and going forward in the future do you think carvers will work differently than you're working today
5: Uh yeah i would say the the tools that i have at my um at my disposal when i'm carving are significantly different uh, than than those that were available not only uh, uh 200 years ago to my ancestors but um two generations back one generation back because i have uh, I have an electric chainsaw, um, a battery-operated electric chainsaw. I've got all sorts of different power tools that I can use in the early stages of, of blocking out and roughing out a pole. Um, when it comes to that, when you're actually getting down to the finishing, it's pretty similar, right? You're, it's, for me, anyways, it's, finishing is always done with with hand tools, uh, but you can certainly speed up the process of of, um, of getting to to use the smaller tools um, and I've been even within my own lifetime. Now that it's getting harder to find these old growth trees, I've been working on a, a project I call totem 2.0, but it's a, uh, what it is, is figuring out how we can make tapered beam out of um, out of second growth cedar. So younger trees, getting the good part of the younger trees. And I've got a system set up where I can take 14 of, 14 smaller beams and fit them together on a like cut them and then fit them together on this machine that we've been developing uh, so that I can carve poles that are the same size um, as the older ones, uh, but not make from old growth.
0: Kerry Newman is a master totem pole carver speaking with us from British Columbia, Canada. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back with our other guests, learning more about traditional totem poles. Tribal interests just gained strength to weigh in on cultural items at museums. Gaming revenue hit an all-time high last year, and tribes continue to make political gains on state and federal levels. But there are challenges as well. We'll hear about those challenges and opportunities when we air the annual State of Indian Nations Address on the next Native America Calling.
3: Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer.
0: We're glad you're tuned in to Native America Calling. We're talking about totem poles today with some master carvers. What is your interaction with totems? What do you admire most about the giant carvings that stand as high as 40 feet tall? Tell us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That number is 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is on the line in Kent, Washington. Chairman Mike Evans He is the chair of the Snohomish Tribe of Indians. Welcome to our show, Chairman Evans.
8: We are. Hello.
0: Hello, Chairman. Hello. Well, I'm interested in in, in talking with you more. Uh, Earlier with our first guest, we talked about uh, appropriation, non-native people carving totems. And recently, you and others were instrumental in taking down two poles in Langley, Washington, that were carved by non-native people. Tell us more. What prompted that action?
8: Uh, the city of Langley um, and the Snohomish tribe were interacting and uh, they, they were um, wanting to take them down and they were starting to deteriorate uh, to the point where they, they needed either additional support, additional work. And, um, and then they started asking about it and we found out the, the backstory story uh, of these two poles.
0: And what was that backstory? Who were these people that made him
8: uh one was a high school student and uh he won um uh, the right to, to have his pole erected and um and they they went to find out all of this sort of thing um and the uh the the pole carver uh now is you know like sixty seventy years old and uh they asked him his story and says well we." He was thinking about his teenage, thinking about himself, and so uh, he put a like a bird at the top, and the bird was um, Thunderbird, but that was to think about um, his drinking days where he was drinking pink Thunderbird.
0: Hmm. whiz. Okay. So just and, kind and of a yeah, just uh, kind of the story of his. Wild and Willy days, huh? As a youth.
8: Yep, and the other one wasn't was uh, not as good looking, but uh, also was deteriorating, and it, and they were all uh, non-natives, and it sure seemed like that they were uh, stealing or appropriating uh, that particular culture. Uh, the city of Langley also has a pole that they haven't erected; it's been laying laying down uh, in the uh, the fairgrounds, and uh, it's fairly old um back from the like eighteen eighties and uh but it but it could not document that it came from a carver by the name of chief william shelton and uh but Shelton had a um a buddy, a pal uh, that he was teaching the the carb and it may have been one of uh, of his prime students that was imitating. Shelton's designs.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Chairman, what's been the response since these two totem poles were taken down? Are, were people upset, or is everybody pretty on board with uh, removing them?
8: They were, the, the the city was on board with it, most of the citizens were on board, uh, but there's still a, a want to have a replacement, and so there's still a, a want to, to have a, a local carver um either somebody like Joel james or uh, the the tlalips, uh they're promoting a a car- a young man who's a carver and uh and things like that to replace the existing the previously existing ones
0: well chairman really appreciate you joining us this morning and and sharing this story. Two totem poles carved by non-Indigenous carvers taken down in Langley, Washington. And uh, I want to bring Jewel into our conversation now. Jewel is in northwest Washington state on the Lummi Reservation. And Jewel, you were on our show a while back and you told us about a totem pole journey from the Lummi Nation to Washington, D.C., an effort to raise awareness of sacred sites. Please give us an update. What's been the response to that pole? Well, it was uh, fantastic. We uh, carved it here on the Lemon Reservation,
7: and we call them story poles because our art is about telling the story behind the images. And uh, we have a lot of uh, spirituality connected to the different images that is uh, reenacted in our, uh, they call it secret societies now. And uh, uh, when we carved that, there was a lot of uh, focus on, the need to protect sacred sites, you know, like uh, Bears Ears was uh, under attack and the sacred sites in the country. And we wanted to be able to bring a, a piece of totem art or a story story pole to Washington, D.C. and gift it to uh, uh, Deborah Holland uh, for the Biden administration, uh, calling attention to the concerns of Indian country. And so, in order to uh, make Indian country aware, we traveled uh, 25,000 miles, uh, zigzagging around the country, uh, down the Pacific coast and across the South Coast, and back diagonally uh, to the state of Washington. And that was phase one, and then back to uh, uh, through D on phase two. Uh, it was well received there on the mall, and it's now at the uh, uh, EPA uh, training center where. Native American youth go to uh, uh, be trained on uh, how the uh, Environmental Protection Agency could or may or did impact their uh, traditional territories. So we're pretty proud that the uh, uh, campaign took place and we believe it was really successful. And of course, a lot of people came forward, you know, uh, providing rooms and buying gas for us. So all in all, it was a successful journey.
0: It sounds like it was, Jewel. Congratulations. And uh, it's interesting. So you took a, a totem pole journey to Washington, D.C., but you've had other other interactions with Washington, D.C. Uh, tell us about a fight you had with the Internal Revenue Service to have your totem art considered tax exempt.
7: Well, first of all, I, I, I've i been involved in treaty rights and indigenous rights all the way to the United Nations uh, when they had the draft declaration on indigenous rights. And, uh, Uh, We worked with uh, the Obama administration to make sure that the uh, declaration was accepted, and uh, I've been involved here and helped create the Lummi uh, Culture Department and uh, Culture Committee. And uh, back in those days, we were really concerned about uh, the protection of uh, uh, Native American arts and crafts and prevention of encroachment by anybody, uh, including the Internal Revenue Service. And uh, back in 2012, the Internal Revenue Service came after me and. uh, They considered me an expert on the United States Constitution and Indian Affairs, and I would debate them publicly at all of our national gatherings and show they were uh, violating the United States Constitution. And eventually, um, we got the language into the Tribal General Welfare Exclusions Act of 2014 that said ceremonial activity is tax-exempted. And, of course, we can't let the IRS define what is ceremonial activity, so... From 2014 to uh, 2019, I continued the uh, campaign to stop them from going into Indian country and trying to tax our artists that are reproducing uh, uh, sacred symbols that are associated with song, dance, ceremony, and rituals. And uh, finally in 2019, uh, I got a call from the National Indian Division of the IRS because I was uh, battling them from different... here in Washington state and they sent it to Oklahoma and they sent it to Florida. And finally I got it transferred to Washington, D.C. And in 2019, the head of the Indian division said that, well, Joel, we got the message, uh, all across the country, wherever we went, uh, tribes were upset about us trying to tax ceremonial activity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we, uh, recognize that your totem pole journeys, uh, really made a big impact. And, uh, as far as we know, there's only one tribe really fighting for ceremonial activity exemptions, and that's Lummi, and the only one fighting the, that at, at Lummi is you. So we got the message. Uh, <laughs> uh, traditional Native American artists tax them. Okay, and so please, cl- Jewel. I'm sorry, just just quickly,
0: Jewel, if you could clarify, please. So does that mean any income that you and other totem artists earn? from creating this traditional art, that that income is tax-exempt? Are we talking about a tax deduction on supplies and equipment that you used to build these? No, no. The
7: income is tax-exempt.
0: Okay, got it. All the income.
7: And um, uh, that's why I was really concerned about making sure that there was follow-up. The 2014 law had uh, created a national tax committee where Native American leaders were appointed to it. And uh, our local representative is William Ron Allen, chairman of the Jamestown-Kalala. And I made sure he received all the background information on it because the law says that uh, we're right unless the IRS proves we're wrong. And uh, either we can appeal to Congress for uh, clarification or the IRS can appeal appeal to Congress for clarification. And in that process, I had developed a... uh, I, uh, uh, a lot of materials on how to define what is ceremonial activity without disclosing the uh, 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 secret aspects of our traditional knowledge. And so I still want to make sure that uh, it was nationally disclosed. I know the uh, head office of the IRS on Indian, the Indian Division informed the Seattle Division to leave the Native American artists alone.
0: All right. Well, I think a lot of Native artists are uh, very grateful for for your actions there, taking on the IRS like that, Jewel. Let's talk to T.J. Young now. He's in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, T.J., thanks again for joining our show. And tell us more about uh, a healing pole that you and your brother carved for boarding school survivors. The pole stands at the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage. What does the pole look like? And, And tell us how you approached its carving.
6: Yeah, hi. Um boy Jules talk got me all excited. I'm doing my taxes right now. <laughs> stressing me out. But um yeah, so we um this uh native uh elder by the name of Norma Jean got a hold of the Alaska Native Heritage Center up here in Anchorage. And the Heritage Center got a hold of us and asked us if, if we're interested in carving a boarding school healing totem pole. And um we just happened to be working on some other totem poles down where I'm from in Heidelberg, Alaska on Prince of Wales Island, in Southeast Alaska. And, um, we said, sure. Gee, that sounds like a really good, really good project. We knew it was a heavy subject for a lot of people. Um, you know, we didn't know exactly what to depict on it. We ended up doing carving a bear mother and her two cubs kind of a, as, as a way of holding, uh, we were trying to understand how confusing it must have been for not only the the parents but but the kids to to um get taken away a thousand miles away from you know their hometown and coming back and and speaking a different language and how they must have felt you know super confused being able to speak their language at home but not in a different place and learning the whole language thing and not to mention some of the other things that might have happened at these schools. Um but we just tried to de- to depict um <clears throat> we didn't want to depict anything really specific and, and 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 so we ended up putting a bear mother on there whole consoling her to to um bear cubs and on top of her is a father inside a Raven's tail. Now we put we we carved Raven as a you know, Raven was kind of our our cultural hero. Uh he was a trickster, but he's also our cultural hero back in the day. And so we put him mid transformation. He's in human form, but he also has his Raven beak. Um, and that's, that's the fine dance that the, both the parents and the children must have to do. They couldn't really be themselves. They can't they couldn't be Haida and they weren't white. So they had to play this little dance where they're somewhere in between. So we mm-hmm. put Raven kind of mid transformation on the totem pole and then up, uh, up top is some, um, we got two little children um, kind of nestled inside a raven's ears. Um, that's kind of the, the next generation. It kind of represents the next generation of children who can still be comfortably inside a raven there, being consoled by him or, or uh, comforted by him. But they got a better outlook. They're way on top of the totem pole. They can see a little bit farther, so they're, 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 they're comfortable. They can be who they are. And they, it's, it's more like they can see out into the future and, and, and for um, so it's, it's, it was a, it was a good experience. It was a pretty, it was a pretty um, heavy experience for a lot of people, but I think a lot of people were able to release some of their emotions and, uh, and uh, together and, and um, so now we have a a public setting where anybody could come who, who experienced uh, that era of boarding school and residential school and they'll have a place to uh you know maybe maybe talk about it or 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 just you know practice their own healing journey so that went up in uh, october it was one of our coldest totem pole raisings it's really cold up here in anchorage in october Mm
0: -hmm. um
6: so that was a new that was a new experience we usually do the totem poles in uh, summertime if we could um, oh you do you know yeah just just because of the weather and traveling for everybody Mm -hmm. to everybody to get there and experience it. And so, but yeah, it was, it was a really good experience. And like I said, it was heavy for some, but I think it released a lot of emotion in people and helped on their, their healing, healing journey. So
0: TJ, to hear you describe how much thought, how much preparation, how much cultural knowledge goes into to carving designing a pole like you and your brother created and then we have this discussion of of non-indigenous people taking up the craft uh creating totem poles sometimes it sounds like almost like a joke like this whole idea of like you know creating a liquor store analogy and things like that i mean what's your thought on that and and what do you think tribal communities uh need to do to address uh issues of cultural appropriation such as this
6: Um, I remember when I first started carving, I didn't even realize that non-natives, um, carved. And then as soon as I kind of figured out, um, or started to learn more about a lot of non-indigenous carvers, uh, particularly from the Washington area, I was, a lot of us were, were kind of confused and, and kind of, you know, it didn't, it didn't sit right with, with a lot of us. And, uh, it wasn't until, 2016 i got to actually meet one and work with one a non, non-native and uh, i i gotta tell you it, it changed my mind a little bit he he the amount of knowledge he he wasn't doing it for the money uh the amount of knowledge he shared with me um he just seemed to have that carving spirit too it's hard to explain but he mm-hmm. just seemed to have that that passion and that and that um like I said, it's just a carving spirit, but that's, I don't know if they're all like that. I, it's hard to just put, you know, uh-huh. one blanket over them. It's it's everyone's different. But that was my only experience. Now I, I, I you know, and he's, he's not carving, he's not doing shows. Like I said, he's not in it for the money i feel like he was in it for the right reasons so i don't i don't i, I don't know if 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 they're all like that i can't so i can't all right this right. or that so we're gonna have to
0: take another break uh tj but what you're describing I, i've heard this story before i've heard other people talk about non-indigenous artists who have their hearts in the right place so i uh, appreciate you chiming in there uh anybody with a question or comment we're talking about traditional totem poles today one eight hundred 99 native
3: Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees info, and applications at org. who support this show.
0: You're tuned in to Native America Calling. Today's topic, totem poles. And in a few minutes, we'll get a quick update on plans for a protest by indigenous people at the Super Bowl coming up this Sunday. T.J. Young is on the line. He is a Haida Carver in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, T.J., tell us a little bit more about uh, just you know, the history here of totems, and, and I understand that a lot of knowledge was lost with regard to carving totem poles in the early 1800s, not only because of disease, but also there were prohibitions against carving. And has their tradition recovered from that time? And if so, how how does the future, what lies ahead with regard to, to people like yourselves and others who are interested in taking up the craft of, of carving totems?
6: Yeah, um, well, I think... It was the late 1800s, 1862 was when, when smallpox hit our community pretty hard. We lost about 95% of our population, and um, that's kind of known as the Dark Ages. But one, one thing that was really severed that was so important just in everyday lifestyle was the master apprentice, and I'm not just talking about carving totem poles. It was the weavers, it was the... Uh, it was the um, you know, the canoe, the house makers. everything, everything was passed down master apprentice. So, um, that got severed pretty, um, that connection was severed in the late 1800s and what, in what I didn't even, I had no idea. I didn't even get to, I didn't realize how much of an impact that, um, that would have until I got to work with a master carver, Robert Davidson. And I, I didn't, I totally underestimated the, uh, um, how beneficial that relationship is. And I, I couldn't imagine, um, not working with him now. And that's kind of one of the things I I do with my apprentices. One of his, one of his things that he taught me was to, we got to study, we got to maintain the standard. The standard has to be maintained. It was, it's been building up for a thousand, a couple thousand years or so. So it's kind of on us to keep that standard going. So with that, he had me really mastering the basics and, um, like I said, that that master apprenticeship is is now. I got a two apprentices working under me. Uh, my brother Joe and I have a couple of apprentices working under us, and we're trying to pass on that that the same idea is to master the basics. As far as the future goes, um, it feels like there's a lot more people doing it because it's a lot more visual now. You got a lot more social media, Facebook, Instagram. It does seem like there's a lot more artists actually producing work um the thing is i think a lot of the young people don't and i like i said i didn't realize it till i got to work with the master how important it is to master the basics because the the two-dimensional design is the written language they say we didn't have a written language well we our two-dimensional uh art form design was the written language and then the t- totem poles would be like a 3d version of the two-dimensional language so, and we were able to read, read it like a book back in the day. I think everybody from the village would be able to kind of read it like a book. Oh, so-and-so lives there. Oh, that's so-and-so from, you know, this clan. Oh, there's my clan right there. And here's the uh, <laughs> creation story. So they would read it like a book. There's were like, you know, even going by on a canoe, you'd be able to, wow, yeah. so-and-so lives there. Let's go visit them. Uh, that's you, <laughs> know, you, you recognize that totem pole when I, you know. When we were kids, we raised this totem pole, so they were able to read it like a, like a book. Like you, you go by a village and there's 80 totem poles there, and you're like wow, you could just kind right. of you know walk around and right. almost like a
0: library. So, and they said we didn't have, uh, they said we didn't have a way to write language, huh? What do you think of that? No,
6: yeah, we, we <laughs> sure. I think we, I think All we right. did. I, I think, think we so did,
0: too. So, TJ, we're gonna take a caller, Tom, listening in Anchorage, Alaska, on KNBA. Good morning, Tom.
4: Good morning, and thank you so much for this
7: program. Uh, it was wonderful to hear and to uh, recognize how important it is. Just a few moments ago, I drove by the, the mural downtown and recognizing that, yes, that's Potemacard as well, but it, for those of us who come from that village or descendants from there, uh, that's uh, 14,000 years old, that story, and it talks about how to receive the salmon, and it it's not for the totemic art that mess forever. It's now more than ever, we need that totemic art to tell the story and the wisdom of our elders so it can be shared with the generations to come. So thank you so much for
3: this program.
0: Well, Tom, we sure appreciate you sharing uh, those words of wisdom. Tom, listening on KNBA Anchorage, Alaska. Joining us now from the Macaw Reservation is Greg Colfax, our next guest. And Greg, uh, good morning again. I know you are a master carver. And let's talk about these two totem poles in Seattle by Pike's Market that were recently the center of a controversy. What's the issue there?
4: Um, well, good morning and good morning to all. Um, the, the poles were de- designed by... Uh, the late Marvin Oliver, and he was hired by Victor Steinbrick uh, to provide a a visual display that would honor the the native peoples of Washington State and native peoples from uh, all over who uh, go by Seattle. Um, Victor he. Gave it as a gift, and so um, he hired Marvin, and Marvin designed one of the poles. I understand, but Marvin didn't have time, you know, to to do the work. He was really busy with other other projects, and so um, he hired a non-native carver to do the work. Um, but Marvin did the design, and you can see. You can see his design elements on that pole, and so it it's it's complicated. But the way the way I look at it is that uh, we have a saying here in Nez that when you're invited, you know, to a potlatch or invited to a dinner, that you honor the invitation, and so in this sense with these polls, this polls here in Steinbrecht park, in my opinion is honoring the gift that this man made and to remember, um, his kindness and generosity, you know, to the native peoples. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that, that, that's, it it is complicated, but listening to the other fellows, the other carvers. uh, yeah, there, there are very extreme examples of cultural appropriation, that, that's, that's for sure. Um,
0: so in this situation, Greg, as you describe it, uh, a Native artist was the designer, but uh, didn't have the time, so when the actual carving took place, that was a non-Native artist who performed that. So it's, uh, it's, it's not a cut-and-dry cut case of cultural appropriation like these other stories we've been talking about, and... Uh, that's an interesting, interesting development so what's been the feedback uh now with regard to these polls and where does it stand now with this controversy
4: you know i'm I'm not certain um, uh Marvin's uh sister marianne uh she uh reached out to me and and said you know if if I would fix them um, i I've had that opportunity over the years you know that to to fix poles and, and things and some of the ones that I've done um you know 20 25 years later um, and so I took a look at them and the, the the bottoms are rotten out you know that's they they have that part has to be replaced but the tops were covered with copper copper sheeting and so that kept the rain from uh, entering from the top you know, there's heavy checking going on, but uh, you do the old knuckle test. You know, you you, you wrap it around. You know, and, and if you got a nice high-pitched sound, you know, you got you got you still have solid wood there. And so,
0: well, that's a challenge, man. I would imagine, because I mean, wood that is a that's a living material at some point. So it it you have to what kind of maintenance goes into making sure that a, that a totem pole holds up over the generations.
4: Well, the first part is that copper sheeting on the top you know that that's that's pretty important. and then keeping the um the wood free from uh, from standing water and and then the the dust that collects around it and then the the vegetation that starts growing around it and then that invites rot. so you got to keep all that you got to keep air moving you know through the bottom of the pole. Um, that gets kind of hard, and, and sometimes that's not done. So that's why those that particular pieces they they rot out.
0: Um, and Greg, about how much of the totem pole actually has to be underground so you have enough of foundation so it stands tall and doesn't
4: you know lean or or tilt? Ooh, that's um, I haven't worked on on that part. Uh, most of the just about all of the poles that I've worked on and have installed are. Um, they get bolted to uh, uh, an I-beam or, or something of that sort and the use of concrete. Um, and so that's... You know, the fellows up north, I think, we could better answer that that question, you know?
0: Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, well, Greg, like TJ
4: like us... could do that.
0: Uh-huh. Well, let me ask you I mean, What have been some of your favorite totem poles that you've worked on over your many decades of carving?
4: Um, well, there there are some in in William Shelton, uh, his name has popped up in this discussion here. Uh, He did uh, maybe more than two, but I know of two 70 foot poles that he carved They're story poles. One was in Everett, Washington, and the other one was on the Capitol grounds in Olympia, Washington. Uh, across the street from the General Service Administration building. And so I got hired to uh, to refurbish that one in, on the Capitol grounds. Um, that was a, an incredible challenge. Um, it, it didn't have copper sheeting on the top. And um, uh, there was severe rot on the top. And the, the, it was a solid log that was carved on the north side and the south side. That would be one way to describe it. And so water entered into both those, those sides. But the east and west sides were not carved. And so that formed uh, internally uh, solid pieces of wood that held the whole thing up. Um, and so when I, I got hired to, do the, to fix it, um. Uh, there was a. I had to seal a lot of the uh, the openings and the the rot that that was on the design portions, and I had to. There was an eagle on top, and I had to chop that off and create a new one and then glue that in. But Jeez. one of the but one of the problems was that it was always weeping water at the base. There was always okay. water coming coming out of it, right. and it was sunk in the ground about oh, I don't know, 8, nine, ten feet. I'm sorry, and...
0: Tom. It sounds like just, you know, the ongoing moisture issues are certainly a challenge, and uh, we do have to pivot uh, the show now, but I really appreciate you joining us and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise on totem poles. And we're now going to take a couple of minutes from today's show to present a native perspective of the Super Bowl game coming up this Sunday. Of course, it's among the most watched television events of the year. It's also highly problematic to those who are working to get rid of sports mascots. They feel are offensive to native Americans. The Kansas city team is based on a native theme and imagery. And some feel that the San Francisco team celebrates gold miners who contributed to the destruction of tribes in California. I talked with Rhonda Lovaldo, founder of not in our honor who will be protesting the game in Las Vegas. She says she and others intend to educate the fans in attendance. Many of whom will not welcome their message.
9: Uh, people try and get argumentative, and I understand, you know, because people are probably been drinking for a little bit, tailgating. We get people coming up to us, uh, doing the chop in our face, again, trying to argue. I think only once has there kind of been sort of a little bit of a scuffle, I would say. But, you know, for the most part, we're just there trying to educate people about why this is wrong and why we don't appreciate it. The movie we were in, "Imagining the Indian, that showed some of our protesting, it came out on Apple and Amazon. So now it's being streamed. And if people need to understand why this is problematic, they should go watch that movie. So we're doing a huge push on getting that information out there, as well as letting people know that's where they can get more information. It's a really great documentary if you haven't seen it. You know, the Super Bowl is going all over the world, and people think we enjoy it, and we don't. If people see the impact this is having, you know us trying to get the word out and, and sincerely it's been getting louder, I feel, but also with Taylor Swift not doing the chop, and she obviously knows it's wrong, you know we're going to try and push on that because she has been an ally to other groups, and she needs to know that she could just say something it would be nice, and I know a lot more people are tuned in because she's there
0: That was Rhonda Lavaldo. She is Akima Pueblo and the Dean of the College of Humanities and Art at Haskell Indian Nations University. And with that, we're going to go ahead and have to wrap up the show. We are out of time. So big thank you to all of our guests who joined us today to talk about totem poles, both uh, the making of traditional totem poles and also ongoing challenges that totem pole carvers and communities face with regard to this very, very long-standing and traditional form of art. Big thanks to Kerry Newman, Chairman Mike Evans, Greg Colfax, T.J. Young, and Jewel James. We'll be back on Monday with coverage of the annual State of Indian Nations Address from the National Congress of American Indians. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer, with a big thanks this week to Roman Garcia. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Quantic Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a good weekend.
3: Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Sky Screen Printing, who support this program. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally-owned insurance partner. Information on property liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. <laughs>
4: ERHS Kachaiig, Kachu Healthcare.gov Kachu 1 800 318 2596 Kachaiig, Medicare Ka Medicaid
3: Aya.
0: Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kawanak Broadcast Corporation, a native non profit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American
6: Radio Network.